Praise the Lord. Let's read a scripture passage and pray. And I'd like to share with you what the Lord's put on my heart for the day. The passage is in Joshua chapter 5. Starting with verse 2. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeot Ha'arolot. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they were come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not, been, they had not circumcised them along the way. Now, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal, that is, rolling unto this day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here. Now, Lord, we ask that I might speak with circumcised lips to people with circumcised ears, that we might have circumcised hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. I notice that when Ray speaks on Sunday morning, he gives out a title right at the beginning. So let me give mine. Circumcision, a type of sanctification. Now, as soon as I throw out a title like that, I have to define things because I find Christians, by and large, throw around big words like sanctification and regeneration. And if you pin them down, they don't really know what they're talking about. But it all sounds really good and spiritual and scriptural. And I'm clueless. All right. Let me start with sanctification. For today, our working definition is going to be this. Sanctification is that work of God in us that makes us as holy and pure and loving as Jesus is. It deals with the root of sin, and it puts the love of God in our hearts. Now, there are many aspects of sanctification. We're going to just mention three and only deal with one today because... I understand we have to be out of here before midnight, and so we, you know, we, we want to keep focused on just this one thing. Uh, part of the sanctification process is dedication, or sometimes it's called consecration, where I do what I can to take everything in me, everything that I am, everything that I hope for, all my sin, all my righteousness, everything, and lay it on the altar for God to consume. And then there's the Another aspect that's 
purification. I can't purify myself. All I can do is consecrate. God comes and purifies. That's his part of the process. And then, this is actually my favorite, but we can't touch it today, perfect love. Where God so fills my heart with his love, that's the thing that allows people to perceive Jesus in me and in you. All right, so that's the definition of sanctification. Now I want to deal with type, sanctification, a type. I'm, I'm sorry, circumcision, a type of sanctification. We are... Well, do you remember when you were robbed in elementary school? Do you remember? It, it happened so subtly that you didn't even realize you'd, you'd had it stolen from you. You started out in kindergarten with, with books that had big pages and really big pictures full of color and a couple words at the bottom. And you didn't notice that as you got to first grade, the pictures shrank a little bit and there were more words on the page and they were smaller. And then you get to, to second grade and third grade and the pictures keep shrinking, the words keep growing, and, and pretty soon it's all words. Unless it's a textbook, you know, with the inside of a frog or the, the map of Europe or, or whatever. All the pictures got taken away. That's probably a good thing. But spiritually, the thing that allows us to come into the kingdom is realizing that we don't know a whole lot. We're children. And God is very gracious to paint pictures for us so that we can understand truth that otherwise would be right over our head. And by studying the pictures that he gives us, types shadows, we can, by the Holy Spirit's unveiling, illumination, understand something that we, we wouldn't walk away from a theology book with, with much. But having seen the picture, we go, I understand that. So when I say a type, I'm talking about the Greek word tupas. It, it's not, you know, Zach's a type A personality. I don't know if he is or not, but all right. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about a category. We're talking about a, a foreshadowing, uh, an image of, of something that's even more real. He, there's, um, well, probably the easiest way to say it, in the Old Testament, you have types, and they're either a person, for instance, or perhaps a ritual, or maybe an event where when we look back at them, we go, ah, oh, I see that there's a spiritual truth there. Case in point. I mean, the New Testament paints a lot of these quite clearly. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, comes and meets Abraham after the slaughter of the kings. And what's the teaching in Psalms? What's the teaching in the book of Hebrews? It's how Melchizedek shows us an aspect of the heavenly ministry of Jesus. Okay, so Melchizedek is a type. He's a shadow. He's something we can look at and say, there's a picture. I think I understand something more. Or we could take an event like passing through the Red Sea, leaving Egypt behind. There's a picture there. All of Pharaoh's army getting drowned. It's, it's a picture of salvation. It's 
an unfolding of what baptism does. All right, or you can have a, a ritual, uh, say the, the Day of Atonement or the various sacrifices. There's something there where God opens up a picture. So circumcision we're going to see as a picture for God to explain a little bit about what he does in the process of purifying us, making us holy. So let me define circumcision. Every male, male organ, is covered with something called a, a prepus, or we call it a foreskin. Now, men, you're going to feel awkward about this, but not the sisters. You say, why is that? Very simply, they had all this figured out by age 10 because they babysat. And they changed diapers. And they asked innocent but pointed questions. And so they learn stuff that you didn't know. Okay? So this isn't awkward for them, but this will become awkward for you. It's all right. Just want you to know. Circumcise, you know, the, where we get circum, like circumference, it's the distance, what, around a circle. And the size part is where we get sizers, you know, what the thing would you cut paper with or you cut cloth with scissors. So to circumcise is to take that foreskin that comes over the male organ, cut around it so that it comes off. That's what circumcision is. So there's our three definitions. Sanctification, type, certain. Now, let's go into it in, in Scripture. First time we come across circumcision is in Genesis 17. Do you remember what happened in 17? Friday night we got done with 19. 18 was God and the angels coming to visit Abraham. What was 17? Do you remember? Anybody remember? Okay. 17 was where God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham. Makes him wonderful promises and says, Now, as a sign of this covenant, every male among you, eight days old and upward, is to be circumcised. And so Abraham, who's well up there in years, in his ninth decade, he's circumcised. And everyone in his household, clear down to the youngest child of the lowest slave, if they're a male, they're circumcised. And here is this wonderful and mysterious type. Why circumcision? What is it about circumcision that God wanted to show? There's um, the eight days. We'll get to eight days in a minute. It's a sign that they belonged to Jehovah. They belonged to the living God. It's a hidden sign. It's not something that would you could see outwardly under normal circumstances, but it was there. And it was permanent. Now... Nothing wrong with physical circumcision. Observant Jews in the New Testament, for instance, the mother and father of John the Baptist, the mother, the, the mother of Jesus and Joseph, they had Jesus circumcised. Paul took Timothy, who was Jewish, but hadn't been through what's been called the Brit Milah, the, the, the sign of the covenant, the, the covenant of circumcision, 
So he circumcised him as a young man, perhaps a teenager or somebody in his early 20s. Paul acted as what's called a, a mohel, the, the circumciser, the, the person responsible for performing this circumcision. Not to be crude, but you want somebody who knows what they're doing. You want somebody who knows how to wield that knife because it's very close, it's very precise, especially when somebody comes at it as, as, a, as an adult male, all right? You want someone who knows how to handle the knife, who knows exactly where to cut and what to cut. Of course, there was this big controversy we read about it in Acts 15, we read about it in the book of Galatians, where they were trying to put circumcision and the keeping of the law, the Jewish law, on the Gentiles. And God says, no, absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that circumcision doesn't have an immediate call on every man and woman and child here. When God does something, he, he never just does it for spiritual reasons, nor does he do it just for physical reasons. Why circumcision? You know, there are good medical reasons for circumcision that only in the 20th century did we begin to fully understand as we knew more about bacteriology, as we knew more about disease, as we knew more about gathering statistics on, on various plagues that are on people. Did you know that certain types of male cancers are statistically, essentially zero in populations that practice circumcision? And did you know that cervical cancer statistically is exceedingly rare among women whose husbands are circumcised? Why is that? Well, that foreskin is a nice, warm, moist place for all sorts of bacteria, disease, spores, you name it. It can hide there. If the foreskin's taken off, all of that area is exposed. No place for things to hide. Easily cleaned. So, benefit for men benefit for women. And here's something that we didn't know until the 20th century. Why did God pick the eighth day for a child to get circumcised? Why not the fifth? Five's a number of grace. Why not the seventh? It's the number of perfection. And why not three? You know, it's uh, the number of the Trinity. Why the eighth? You can say, well, it's resurrection. No, there's a, there's a physiological reason that we only found out thousands of years later in a newborn baby's gut bacteria begins to come online good bacteria wholesome bacteria stuff that you need and there are certain bacteria that around the fifth or sixth day begin to kick in and they begin to produce a uh, the, the vitamin K, and this vitamin K in turn produces some proteins called, one of which is called prothrombin. 
prothrombin is a, a blood clotting agent. And as this production kicks up, on the eighth day, only the eighth day, not the seventh, not the ninth, prothrombin is at levels of 110% of normal. Isn't God good? Isn't he wise? Oh, he knew all about that. After all, he created us. So why the eighth day? There may be spiritual reasons, but the physiological reason is that's the day that that a cut is going to uh, coagulate, the, the, the blood in the cut is going to coagulate most quickly, and the healing take place most quickly. And I didn't just make all that up. There's a book that's been out for decades, four decades that I know. It's called None of These Diseases. It's written by a medical doctor by the name of Macmillan. And it's a very helpful book. Now, let's think about some other things about circumcision. It doesn't happen at birth. We just said that. It happens on the eighth day. It happens subsequent to birth. So it's, it is, as it were, you were talking about this a little bit uh, a couple of days ago, it's a second experience after birth. Um, it happens at a specific point in time. It's not spread out over a long period. Again, not meaning in any way to be crude, but guys, if you were a male, adult, undergoing circumcision, would you want it to be, eh, we're doing two millimeters today. Come back in a week, we'll do another millimeter. Come back in a month and we'll do maybe two more millimeters. If you have to undergo that, you want it all done at once. Okay? There's an important point there with circumcision because it's an instantaneous event. Now, uh, sanctification can be like that. Sanctification can be a process, but that process always gets to a point where it happens. Just like you can look back to the day of your salvation and say, that was the day that God met me. That was the day when I accepted Jesus, and maybe more importantly, Jesus accepted me. Same thing with sanctification. There's a set day, and almost everybody who has been sanctified can look back and say, that was it, that was the day. John Wesley put it this way. A man may be a long time dying. That would be the process of sanctification. But there comes a point when he actually dies. That's the instantaneous work of God in sanctification, after which you can walk free from indwelling sin. So we're, we're dealing now, just looking at some aspects of the picture. We're kind of studying God's picture. What is it that we're supposed to learn about this, from this, about sanctification? Circumcision deals with a very private organ, normally not seen. That's the same thing as the heart. You don't see it. You might not see the evil in it. 
But it's there and God can deal with it. God can make requirements of it. Okay. Now, turn with me to Deuteronomy, what is it, 6, no, chapter 10, I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 10. Just want to look at a couple of scriptures. Commands from the Lord. Because you see, we're all born with uncircumcised hearts. And I'll prove that to you from the scripture. Deuteronomy 10. And we're looking at, uh, just for the sake of time, I'm going to pull some of these out of context. God says, circumcise your heart. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart is what the Hebrew says. And stiffen your neck no longer. That means there's something in the heart that can be cut off. Something in the heart that can be cut out. Something at the core of you that doesn't make you any less you, perhaps makes you more you, once it's cut away. Circumcise your heart. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. I'll pick it up actually from verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And when God makes a commandment, it's implicitly understood that God's not going to ask you to do something that you can't do. So part of this process of being circumcised is a commandment from God. It's there. It needs to be cut away. And think about how the foreskin and all of the disease that it can harbor and hide. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You look, and what do you see? You see a nice, smooth foreskin. What's underneath the foreskin? All manner of corruption and sin and evil. The New Testament, we don't have time to go into all of these pictures, but the New Testament calls this same thing by many names so that we can get a full comprehension of it. The sin nature. The old man. The carnal mind. And there are others. But it's all talking about different aspects of the same thing. God says it needs to be cut away. It's got to be cut away. Otherwise, you can't come into the fullness that he has for you. Now, praise God, here's a promise. A promise that we'll come back to. Deuteronomy 30. Verse 6. Let's see. There we are. Moreover, the Lord your God, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. You say, who does the circumcising? Me or God? 
What's that thing I was talking about? There's the dedication, there's the consecration, there's me giving up my all. I can't be circumcised physically if I am not willingly present and say to the mohel, I'm here to receive the mark of circumcision. And, and bravely submit to that process. All right? But Jesus is the one who does the cutting. Jesus is the one who so perfectly wields that knife yes. as to cut off everything that has to go and nothing else. And to cleanse away that place where sin, the nature, dwelt. Now, we could look at a couple of other verses, but for the sake of time, I just want to just read them to you. In Leviticus 26, God says, if there, he's talking about a time of judgment for his people, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. And in Ezekiel 44, you shall say to the rebellious ones to the house of Israel. Remember, God speaking to his kids. Thus says the Lord God, enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel. This is from Ezekiel 44, 6 through 9. When you brought foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house, you offered food, the fat, the blood. They made my covenant void. This is in addition to all your abominations. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. Now, if you think it's bad enough to have uncircumcised heart, there's also such a thing as uncircumcised ears. That's why some people refuse to hear this word, that God can set me free from sin. I can testify to that. God has set me free from sin. Amen. God worked a work in my heart so that I, made, I went from the, the, the state of always having to sin always being motivated to sin, having sin kind of drag me along unwillingly to a state where I am free not to sin. Not that I can't. It's that there's nothing in me. There's no fifth column. There's, there's nothing that's sort of always pushing that direction. That's the result of sanctification. That's the result. All right. Acts 7, 51, famous passage where Stephen is on trial for his life, and he gives his life, and he's giving this great, amazing defense, taking his judges through the scriptures and convicting them out of their own book, out of his own book. He's got them all coming right along, uh-huh, mm-hmm, okay, if he had not compromised, if he had compromised, maybe he would have walked out of there with 39 lashes, maybe. But instead, 
right when they're all focused on him. Verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Oh, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. Now he takes them to all those places of Scripture we were just talking about in Ezekiel 44 and in Leviticus, where was it, 2022, uh, and some of these other. So what? You've got physical circumcision. God says your heart's still corrupt. And you can't hear his words because your ears are uncircumcised. Wow. I admit it. Somebody holds your feet to the fire like that, you might want to stone him too. Not because what he's saying isn't true, but because it is true and you don't want to face the fact. So you close your uncircumcised ears, harden your uncircumcised heart, and you say, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Bunch of crazies. They're all part of the lavender cult. Those of you who have gotten on the New Testament know what I'm talking about. All right. And all he's doing is he's echoing what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 6.10. Where are we here? To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears, your, your translation probably says their ears are closed. But the Hebrew says their ears are uncircumcised. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Part of what the prayer has been through the ministry here at NPC, through the radio ministry, is that God would open uncircumcised ears so that the word can penetrate uncircumcised hearts. That's the burden. That's the burden. Now, did you know that you could have uncircumcised lips? That's my great fear today for me. Because this is such a wonderful, glorious gospel. This is what's called the full gospel. It's one thing for Jesus to save you from your sins. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. But what kind of a gospel is it that only saves me from the penalty and doesn't save me from the cause? God's not a dummy. He's not going to keep whitewashing the fence, whitewashing my heart. He wants to deal with the root. Wherefore, it says in Hebrews, Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost, completely, right down to the taproot of sin. That's full salvation. Oh, I only want partial salvation. I want to keep my sin, plead the blood, How dare you plead the blood when you continue to sin? You crucify to yourself the Son of God afresh. You put him to an open shame, and yet you call yourself a Christian. I hope I'm not speaking to anybody here, but that's it. There's only one person who can handle the blood of Jesus. That's the high priest of God. That's Jesus himself. And that blood is meant not just to cleanse the outward 
but to cleanse the inward. In another figure, that ministry of Jesus is to cut that foreskin off of the heart, wash it thoroughly so that it can never be contaminated again. Moses talks about uncircumcised lips. Turn to Exodus 6. There's two passages there. And I'm not a King James only or even King James favorite, although I did grow up on it, but here's one place where the King James just runs circles around most modern translations. Moses spake before the Lord, saying... This is verse 12 in Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm sorry, Exodus. I said Deuteronomy probably, but Exodus. Uh, I had Deuteronomy in the notes and fixed it. Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? And then the end of the chapter, verse 30. Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh hearken unto me? How are we going to get this message out? Not only that, you walk in righteousness, but that God can allow you, by this sanctifying grace, by this full salvation, to walk in holiness, free from sin, full of the love of God. Oh God, circumcise not just my heart, not just my ears, but circumcise my lips so that I can speak purely and, and straightly and absolutely clearly to this generation. Some translations say, you oh, know, I speak with faltering lips, I'm unskilled in speech. I'm such a clumsy speaker. I know sometimes translators are trying to help us understand, but a lot of times all they do is muddy the waters. If you understand this truth about circumcision and uncircumcision, I'd much rather they left it alone. And there are some translations that do that besides the King James. Now listen. Now we get to the really good stuff. Romans chapter 2. Last two verses of the chapter. Talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles, real and, and imagined those who walk in righteousness and could we substitute for Jew, Christian? I've got the Bible. I know God's word. Jesus died for me. Yeah, well, where's the change in your life? Romans 2, 28. He's not a Jew. He's not a Christian who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Christian who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, I'm going to add by the sanctifying Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Amen. What was the mark of belonging to Jehovah in Genesis 17? What was the physical mark that said, there's somebody who's in the covenant. Circumcision, physical circumcision. Then please tell me, what is the mark of someone who was in the new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ? It's someone who has a circumcised heart. 
if the physical deals with the Old Covenant, actually even goes before the Old Covenant, heart circumcision is the mark of somebody following Jesus. That's the mark that says, that one's a Christian. That one's a Christian. They've got the mark. They've got the mark. Colossians 2. And this I'm going to read, not out of the New American Standard, which is what I've read most of this from, but I want to read it from the NIV. I'm not normally a big NIV fan, but the translators nailed it. I don't know why they nailed this and they don't nail some of the others. Colossians 2, 11. In him, in Christ, you were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Let me tell you something. Certain parts of the body regenerate. Certain ones don't. You know, you... You scrape some skin off your knee or off your wrist or your elbow, it'll grow back. You cut off a foreskin, and it never does. It's permanent. It's lasting. You bear that mark the rest of your life. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done with hands, not by an earthly mochel, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Oh, God, cut clear around my heart. There's a, there's a hymn Charles Wesley wrote. It's called, All Things Are Possible. And at first you'd think, oh, well, the title like that, that sounds like a name it, claim it, positive confession, all the rest of that sort of, no. Listen to the second verse. Tis most impossible of all that sin's dark reign in me should cease. Yet shall it be, I know it shall, tis certain, though impossible, the thing impossible shall be. All things are possible to me. See, if you've been in, in Christian circles for any time at all, unless you just came right in the door here, you have been told and programmed over and over and over again, you just have to deal with sin, you just have to deal with sin. It's something that you have to deal with till you die because Jesus either can't or won't deal with your sin nature. But your enemy will. You say, the devil? Oh, no, no. You know, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So your enemy will free you of your sin nature, whereas your friend, your Savior, your Lord, your God, your lover, Jesus, won't? What kind of goofed up theology is that? If that's true, what a wicked, wicked place a cemetery must be. After pit, after pit of sin. The sin is not in your body. That's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about the flesh. That's another term like carnal mind and sin nature and all the rest of that. No. And the sin is not you. It's something that occurred 
subsequent to creation. Man wasn't created with a sin nature. That is, as it, as it were, an infection that came later. Jesus, the circumciser, can circumcise that out. Oh, that you would believe the testimony of the New Testament and stop talking nonsense like sinning saints. Huh? What? Yes, we're, we're going to we're going to have white blacks. We're going to have high lows. We're going to have insides outside. What? You'd say that's, that's nonsense. But when, when Christians talk about sinning saints, it's like, oh, yeah, right, that makes perfect sense. No, it doesn't. It's stupid. I'm sorry. That's right. Because we were talking about this, I don't know if it was Friday night or Tuesday night. Your God's too small. Your Savior's too small. Your concept of what Jesus was able to accomplish on the cross is too small. It's full salvation. God forbid, but those of you who have been to Ray's house for like Friday nights, imagine an open sewer running through the upstairs. Just, you know, coming from the backyard and, and flowing through the house and out the front door and down the hill. The rats, the vermin, the flies, the disease. Not to, not to speak of the odor. And so Ray, every day, gets up and he puts out rat traps and he sprays to get rid of the flies and he keeps collecting these carcasses and, and uh, you're doing the best that he can. What's the problem with that? He'll never get to the source of it. You've got to stop the sewer... And then pretty much the rats, the flies, everything else, they, they don't come because there's nothing that draws them. If Ray's smart enough to deal with the source, don't you think that God is smart enough to deal with the source? It's the nature. It's what he hates. It's what Jesus came to die for. It's the thing that once it's removed allows you to be filled with God. Let me use a gross analogy. If you're almost pure, if you're almost sanctified, it's kind of like making chocolate chip cookies and only using a little dollop of dog dew. It's brown. You know, kind of mixes right in. You, you beat it up and, you know, if you get enough stuff going, you, you won't smell it. Would you eat it? You know, you go... Wow, chocolate chip cookies. Oh, yeah, I've also used it's a couple of teaspoons of, of uh, dog dew. You know. And yet, we expect God to partake of our hearts while we're still holding on to that. It's okay, Lord, just a little dog dew. You know, you shouldn't mind that much. Well, if I call it dog do, you think it's funny or gross. If I call it sin, it's, eh, you know, whatever. I mean, God understands. Oh, no. Don't you get it? Jesus died to set you free from sin's 
and sin. Think of John's testimony in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, meaning I with the Godhead, the Godhead with me, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, continually keeps on cleansing me from all, does it say sins? No, sin, the nature. That's talking about a permanent state that you can live in. Free for the asking. This isn't a new teaching. It's been around since the New Testament time. Wonderfully revived under the Methodist revival in the 1700s. That was the special gift of the Wesleys and the early Methodists was that you could have a heart free from sin. You've seen it in other places in church history. For instance, the Salvation Army. Have you ever seen a Salvation Army flag? I mean, the banner, this big blue background. And it's, I mean, it's bold, knock your eyeballs out, you know, oranges and reds and yellows. And in this starburst in the middle, it says, blood. And underneath it says, fire. What's the blood? That's salvation. That's me being saved from my sins. That's me being forgiven. That's God bringing me into new birth. What's the fire? That's a different picture that we don't have time to go into of sanctification, of God burning up every trace of sin. In fact, the general next to God, which is a title of a book about uh, William Booth, the leader of the Salvation Army, to burn up every trace of sin, to bring the light and glory in. The revolution now begin. Send the fire. They knew, they preached, and you know, you know what their motto was? You know how they did church growth? Net the sewers. Take your net out and go to the sewers. Bring in the worst of the worst. Because God's blood and God's fire will utterly transform them. Okay, so this doctrine has been around. It was this doctrine that was the, the focal point of, of a real move of God here in the United States in the latter part of the 19th century into the 20th. And then we get to Azusa Street the outpouring of the Spirit with, with powerful gifts, tongues and prophecy and healing and all the rest of that. Do you know that every last person on that ministry team, including Brother Seymour, they were holiness people. They believed and had experienced this freedom from indwelling sin. And if Amy had gone and said, oh, oh I, I, want to, I want you to pray for me. I want to be able to speak in tongues. Brother Seymour would have said, do you have a pure heart? And if Amy said, huh, what? I said, okay, no, we're not going to pray for you. I want you to go over there with those three people in the corner and pray and ask God for a pure heart. And when you get a pure heart, then come back and we'll pray for you to receive the gifts of the Spirit. Why is that? Because they knew that they weren't dealing with the tongue spirit, they weren't dealing with the heebie-jeebie spirit. Oh, I'm so gooey, it's so wonderful. They were dealing with the Holy Spirit. And 
the Holy Spirit will only go into a holy, cleaned-out vessel. Why is there no power in the church? Because we don't want power at the cost of holiness. We don't want the power of God at the cost of God cutting the foreskin off my heart. We don't want it. Let me finish up. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 5. We're talking about pictures. One of the pictures here, one of the most famous pictures of the work of holiness in the heart, really popular among holiness people in its day, was that of crossing over the Jordan into an entirely new life. God parting the way. And then they come to Gilgal. Entry into the promised land. Joshua. Making these knives. Now, you know, no great revelation. Joshua is just the English translation of Yeshua. And, of course, Jesus is just the, the translation of Yeshua. That's not by accident that the man wielding the knife his name is Yeshua. It's Jesus who comes to do this. It's necessary for the church to have a Gilgal, to have a rolling, a rolling of the reproach of Egypt, a rolling of the reproach of the world, that love of sin inside. And such is the need. You know, you think about it. There were... I'm going to underestimate. There were a half million men who had not been circumcised. Now, a foreskin isn't a very big thing, especially when you cut it off and it begins to dry up. But a half a million of anything makes a pretty impressive pile. <laughs> However how, how small they are. Now, what the church needs is for Jesus to start piling up the foreskins of the hearts of his people. And I think revival will only come when that pile reaches a certain size. And you know what? It wasn't until they went through that process, until they had Gilgal, the rolling off, until they could see Gibeat Ha'araloth, the hill of the foreskins, only then... Could they go out and conquer in spiritual victory and claim ground permanently and receive the inheritance that God had promised to them hundreds of years ago? God would not let them take another step uncircumcised. How about you? Some of you have tried, you know, you've, you've wrestled with this sin thing. It's like, oh, God, no matter what I do, probably a good thing. Probably a good thing for you to wrestle with it for a while and find out there's just some of this I can't do. Good. Because otherwise, your righteousness would be self-righteousness. Otherwise, it would be in your own power, and it's still, in the end, all about you. Do you intend to obey 
to obey God's voice because what he says is, circumcise your hearts. Circumcise yourselves. Remove the foreskins of your heart. Listen to this commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Listen to this promise. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6, 5. You say, wait a minute. Is it a promise or is it a command? Yes. Yes. How does God bring you to the place where the promise, that the command that you'll love the Lord your God with all that's in you, become a promise? It happens here. It's a verse that we've already read. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Wow. Wow. Some of you are today at Gilgal. Some of you see the absolute need. And it's just been hard for you to believe God can do that in me. Well, let me tell you, if it's left up to you, no. But if it's left up to Jesus and his power and his blood and the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, the ability for him to cut right around everything that he wants to be rid of to cleanse you, then yes, absolutely. You know, there weren't half a million guys standing around going, gee, I wonder if Joshua can do that for me. Uh, maybe I have to wait longer. Maybe I, you know. No. Today, we do it. All half million of you. I hope he had some help. I'm sure he did. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 6? We urge you that you don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at a time acceptable, I've heard you. God's heard your cry. God knows that you've been dealing with this and struggling with it, and it's good for you to have done that. But now, at a time acceptable, I've heard you. In the day of salvation, I've succored you, I've helped you, I've aided you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now, here, today, is the day of salvation. It can be. Tis most impossible of all that sin's dark reign in me should cease. Yet, shall it be? I, I know it shall. It's certain in my heart, though it's impossible. The thing impossible shall be. All things are possible to me. Not because of my working up the faith, but because of the precious work, the powerful work, the cleansing work, the purifying work, the circumcising work, of the Lord Jesus. You don't have to be mature to be sanctified. You just have to be willing and utter, willing to give up everything, hold nothing back. It's not what you know 
That's why God's drawing pictures for you. It's not some great work of theology that you have to work your way through. You just look at the pictures God gives you, and circumcision is one of them, and you say, Oh, Father, is it that easy? Is it really possible that you could do it in me? Could I please get in line with the other half million and, and receive my circumcision today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we don't have to be THDs and understand tomes of theology. Lord, even those who are treated like we understand the scriptures probably know nothing as we ought. But you're a loving Father. You don't put things out of our reach, even though they might be out of our understanding. What you ask for is simple faith. And in this case, Lord, it's more than just faith in these words about circumcision. It's faith in the utterly transforming power of the precious blood and sacrifice of your Son, who comes not just to wash the stain of sins away, but to cut away the covering for sin, the nature to circumcise our hearts. I ask that you would grant to many here today that germ, that tiny seed of divine faith that says, yes, God will do it in me. God can do it in me right now. Lord, I receive it. Amen. Just this word just came to my mind. Some struggle to come into this experience. Maybe it's necessary for some. But I was just reminded of a sister, dear sister, named Noel. She was born near Christmas. And last name Holly, you know that. Noel Holly. And she heard the word of sanctification. And what God did made me so mad, but I was glad too. She went home from the Sunday morning meeting. She cooked a little lunch. She was tired, so she laid down for a nap before the evening meeting. And she said, Lord, I'd really like a pure heart. Would you please give it to me? And then fell asleep. And she woke up, and she had a pure heart. And I'm thinking, Lord, I suffered for that. <laughs> you know, I had to sweat bullets. Not really, but just the things that God was dealing with in me. So I don't want you to get this idea, oh, I've got to go through this, that, and the other. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. If God says now for you, it's now, not later.